This episode of the Hardman Podcast is brought to you by Salt and Strings Butchery. Order your custom beef bundle today. It's also brought to you by Private Family Banking, helping Christians take dominion through privatized banking. And finally, today's episode is brought to you by Backwards Planning Financial, building multi-generational wealth with Joe Garrisey. Welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn, joined today again by Headmaster Pastor Rev Kev, Kevin Love. Never heard Rev Kev before, but I like it. That's a new one. Uh, normally, K Love. K Love. But I don't Not like, that like one the radio as much. station. Radio I station kind of like threw that one off. So, Kevin, we've been talking about, and I think it's been a really good conversation, but we've been talking about how do you get a business going? How do you make money, is what we're mm. going to be talking about mm-hmm. today. These things all kind of go together, but as we were preparing for this show, it reminded Mm. me of something that Dale Partridge had actually told me in a podcast where he said, you know, because I asked him, I said, what do Christians struggle with? Mm. Like, what is the need of the hour in the church? And he said, you know, he he gave kind of some of the answers that we, you know, have heard before in the church. And then he said, you know, can I just speak honestly? Christians don't know how to make money. Yeah. I remember listening to that one actually. And it was funny because I think you were asking him some of the books that he would recommend. And and as he was going through them, I was like, yep, 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 yep that one too. Mm-hmm. So I, I just want to ask you off the top of the show, like, do you see that same problem? Do Christians have a problem with really their view of money? And I, mm-hmm. maybe I would even tie it to the question of something Brian has talked about. Yeah. Do you think the church is overrun by a also a poverty gospel? Mm-hmm. Like it's better to be poor. Yeah, you run into this all the time. Again, it's not with everyone. There's... There's such a tendency sometimes if you're trying to be catchy that, that you say everyone is in this camp or everyone's in sure. that camp, and, and we're we're definitely not saying that. Yeah, but there really uh, there really is this implicit view of money that is not not found in the scriptures. I think it's a distortion of the scriptures in some sense, certainly. But but you can see where people are coming from when when you hear something such as uh, money is the root of all evil. Right. If if you you've probably heard it like that before, the the issue with something like that is what we're doing when we say that money is the root of all evil is that we're actually taking a text and we're misunderstanding it because the Bible doesn't say that money, as if like the substance itself is evil. It says the love of money. Paul says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, or the the root of all evil. There's debate about that how you actually translate that into the English, obviously, but. It's not that the money itself is evil. It's not that it substantially is evil. There's actually a lot of good that can come from money, but we do have this implicit view almost in Christendom or in Christianity in general that that you're not really allowed to make money as a Christian. Like that would be bad. That wouldn't be okay to make money. Yeah, even uh, pastors, uh, this was an argument for pastors being paid a low wage forever Mm. in the church, especially like Baptist fundamentalist churches that that we were kind of, a part of, they would say, well, we'll keep him poor and God will keep him humble. (laughs) That's the way to do it. You're like, have you ever read what Paul said in 1 Corinthians about paying your pastor? Mm -hmm. Uh, What you're referencing though, 1 Timothy 6.10, the KJV is interesting here because Mm -hmm. obviously that is informed much of English speaking Mm -hmm. culture in the world. That's the inspired version, right? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Speaking of uh, fundamentalist Baptist, but it it says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Mm -hmm. But I think the ESV and trying to flesh this out better, they translate it for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Yes. Yeah. 
So I think that's probably closer mm-hmm. to the Greek. It's a little bit more helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but fundamentally, why should we not understand that passage? We have to take it in light of all of Scripture. Yeah. Scripture has other things to say about wealth, and it's not that it's the worst evil and the root of all evils. No, no, no. It actually says a lot of good things about wealth. If you've ever read the Proverbs, just, I mean, read all 31, right? Read all the chapters. And would you walk away from that and say, you know what? Money is evil. Money, money is Get really, rid of really it bad. at all costs. No, no, no. Yeah. It, it does talk about make, making money. It, it presents it in a positive light. It talks about passing an inheritance to your children like this. They obviously certainly did not take the view that money itself was bad. Can money be used inappropriately? Can it be used in a sinful way? Yes, of course, because money's a tool. You can do a lot with money. But the fact that uh, we're looking at money as if it's an evil thing itself, that's going to influence how we approach money ourselves. And so one thing I think we've done is in our circles, even outside our circles in Christianity, you almost have this view that you're not allowed to talk about money. Or, or, or making money, or, or being really successful at your business to the point that you're rolling in money. You're, you're not. You can't talk about that because that that would almost put you in this like subpar sub sub Christian realm that you're just a, a greedy guy, right? We we have people even in our church, very wealthy, doing a great job in their businesses who are very generous with their money. They're not being evil with their money. They're, they're tithing. They're taking care of other people in the church. They're supporting their own family really well. It itself is not evil. And this is really what this comes down to and why I get kind of passionate about this idea is because if, if we were to boil this tendency down, we would have to say in some measure that it is pharisaical. And the, this is why I say that, though I know that sounds harsh Wh- sometimes. Which part is pharisaical? The, the fact that we're taking a text and we're saying, instead of saying the love of money. Mm, yeah is the root of all kinds of evil or is a root. We're starting to say that money itself is, this is what the Pharisees did. They took the boundary markers of God in God's law where uh, God said, don't do this, don't do that. And they actually moved those boundary markers out away from the center, even further out. So the Pharisees would say, oh, oh, don't even even think about it. Don't, don't Don't even touch it. God said, don't do it. And we say, don't even touch it. Don't even think about it, right? So there, there really is an attempt to be wiser than God in some senses. And mm. that's that's what uh, that tendency of thought, that's where that will lead you. And, and we do this with money, right? Where we say, okay, it says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But now we say money is. We've actually extended those marker boundaries out very far because money can be a tool. Money can be a very good thing if it's used wisely. Well, it's interesting too, because when we think about projects like building New Christendom, this is one of the things, you know, we started New Christendom Press, or, you know, we started St. Brennan's in the school. And I know we've talked about this before, but it's worth repeating that when you're going out and you're saying, okay, we're telling our men in the community, full send, take risk, go after the hard things, maybe get involved in real estate, because we know building Christendom, people need somewhere to live, but also you have to have resources to build cathedrals. You have assets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to have all this stuff uh, to start a media company. You need resources. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, you need money. Yeah. And part of the problem is when you look around Christmas, it's like, well, if our view is that money's bad, so we never want it, mm. we're never in a position to build anything. Yeah. Meanwhile, the left is flush with resources, yeah. and they're able to build their version of culture in the world that— yeah you know, is based with what they say the good life is. Eric, we are building spiritually. Yes. <laughs> Remember that. We always tell this joke in the office, by the way. Um, 
because we'll talk about money and startups yeah. and all these things. And uh, Pastor Dan will say to me, he's like, Eric, our rewards are eternal. Are, et- are eternal and <laughs> heavenly. Yes. Yeah. Which is, which is also true. It is true. But we're also looking at scripture and we're saying, okay, we, we know a few things from scripture, as, as you've mentioned. Mm-hmm. First Timothy 5.8 is one of those. An excellent one. Mm-hmm. Walk it, me through that. Why is that yeah. important here? Yeah, so 1 Timothy 5.8, it says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his, of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Boom. Ouch. Right? I, right? Uh, it's interesting that this, this topic, this specific verse, probably doesn't specifically reference, uh, it's not saying that you have to be super wealthy. So we're not, so- Make sure, yeah, make sure we're not misunderstood here. We're not saying that you're in sin if you're not super wealthy or something like that. However, think about the hindrance that you're going to have if you do not make money, cannot provide even for your own family. Uh, and when I say your own family, just your wife and kids, how could you then provide for your mother? That how can you have, you to have take something to give? Actually? How, how would you have something to give? Yeah, there's actually another another verse that we have uh, and that's in Ephesians four, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So it's insinuating that you ought to work in such a way that there's a surplus. There's a surplus. You're not just providing for your own needs. You're actually able to give to others as well. I I also think Kevin, when you look at these verses and then you combine them with, you know, we're called to be fruitful and multiply in our camp, especially, we're saying, hey, mm-hmm. g- big families are a good thing. Yeah. Well, there's a very real thing here where it's like, well, you need to make a lot of money then. If yeah. you're going to have eight or nine mm-hmm. kids, you seriously have to think about what career, what calling can I do that is going to be somewhat lucrative? Yeah. You have to be good with your money, investing, all these sorts of mm-hmm. things. The, the other thing I would say that that Christians often miss, I'll sit in counseling meetings uh, in in you know for the last 10 years and people were like, yeah, there's just so much friction in our marriage, mm. so much tension. And I say, well, when I look at your budget, friction and tension is inevitable because mm. you can barely provide. Yeah. So, of course, money is going to be a problem. And I will tell the husband, the thing you need to do is you need to go out and you need to make more money. Yeah. But I don't want to fall in love with money. Right. right? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> but, exactly. But, but seriously, right, we we do have that hedge as well or yeah. the baby – that, that is a ditch that we can fall into. You can totally be chasing money, abandon your family, go all out in that sense and neglect your duty. However, there is the other ditch as well. There's the other ditch where you can say, you know what? Money doesn't matter. That's not what the Bible says. That's not, that's not what God ha- would have you understand. And, and we, need, we need to kind of have both of those in, in mind if we are to stay in the straight and narrow. Yeah. One of the other things, Kevin, you're absolutely right, is tied to inheritance. So this Proverbs 13, 22 says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. So again, here's another surplus. Mm -hmm. To have an inheritance, you have to have built up something over a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Lord willing, you know, the ideal would be that you received an inheritance. Yes. You build that up and then you pass on something even Mm -hmm. better. I remember reading like in C.S. Lewis's biography, uh, Jack, and it, this is kind of how Christianity thinks of inheritance today. They, they were applauding C.S. Lewis mm-hmm. because he made millions on his books. He gave away every penny. Oh, wow. And when he died, I think to his 
his adopted son, he gave like $37. That was all he had left. Yeah. And like a dirty tweed jacket. Yeah. And they were like, what a gracious, wonderful man Mm. of God. And I was thinking like, Hmm. I think in that area, that's actually unbiblical. Yeah. Didn't Jesus say something about that, right? To, To the man who would actually neglect the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother because he, oh, sorry, sorry, mom and dad. I donated that money to the temple. I can't touch that anymore, right? And that was the more spiritual path. And I think that's what you're getting to, the, the point you made earlier, then we're holier than God. Yeah, or wiser, wiser. Wiser than, than God, God, holier. But it's like, okay, well, scripture is actually clear. Leaving an inheritance is a good thing. Yeah, um, it says the good man. The good man. The good man leaves an inheritance. The, the other thing that we might look at is, uh, it seems like a easy principle to overlook, but First Timothy five eighteen, mm-hmm. walk me through that. Yeah, so First Timothy five eighteen, for the Scripture says, "You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages." Okay, cool. So another principle that we saw in First Corinthians as well, we're talking about pastors specifically shouldn't muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. While the man is doing his work, he deserves to be compensated for it. It's not fair to expect work of somebody and then say, you know what? I'll decide for you that you're doing that graciously for free. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> Thank right. you very much. Wouldn't it be nice if the world worked like that? You could just force that. We're Christians, people. so you have to give me a discount. <laughs> so you have to give me a discount. You have to do your work for free. Well, well no, we, we shouldn't encourage that thought, uh, especially among brothers and sisters in the faith. You should want to support that brother or sister in their business uh, for the good work that they're doing. Again, it's talking about the the pastor. Uh, I can't remember the specific verse right now off the cuff, but he's he's saying that the pastor who uh, does a good job is worthy of uh, like a double honor. Okay, the first one maybe by his respect in the community, the other one financially as well. You need to provide for that pastor. Someone who's uh, laboring in the preaching and the teaching week after week after week. If you have never done that, by the way, it would be very hard to explain how difficult that is. When you've had to prep Sunday school and you've had to prep a sermon and you've done counseling during the week and, and you have all of these other, you also have a family that you need to care for. The one who does well in that is worthy of double honor. Yeah, so First Timothy 5.17, elders who do their work well should be respected and paid well, especially those who work at both preaching and teaching. I, I was like, what is that translation? That's the NLT. Oh, yeah. That's literally the verse before though, right? Yeah. So, so that was literally the verse before what we just read. So it is saying that, that they're worthy of this double honor. Yeah. Okay. We don't want to say... <laughs> we don't want to say, wow, you are so good at what you do. I know that God will take care of you spiritually <laughs> yeah. in this difficult time, brother. I am sorry. Our sponsor, Private Family Banking Partners, is on a mission to help Christians live out the dominion mandate by making a stealth-like move away from the mainstream banks and into their own privatized banking system. This innovative system is designed to guarantee uninterrupted compound interest and tax-free growth without exposure to typical stock market risks. To join this growing community that is already building wealth into future generations and converting post-mill talk into post-mill action, contact Private Family Banking partner Chuck DeLaterante at his email, chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. Again, that's chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. To set up an appointment and to receive a free copy of Chuck's new book, Protect Your Money Now, How to Build Multi-Generational Wealth Outside of Wall Street, and avoid the coming banking meltdown, go to the link in the show notes for more information.
Do you desire to be shrewd financially for the sake of your family and future generations? Well, we know that a robust society depends on getting this right. Success in building and passing on personal wealth. Let's be mature, responsible leaders with the resources God expects us to turn a profit on, to love our children and children's children well. Joe Garrisey with Backwards Planning Financial integrates investments, debt, insurance, tax strategies, and legacy planning in a holistic approach, coaching his clients to act wisely. You can do better than you received. You can affect your family trajectory and maximize your efforts to set up long-term fruitfulness. Joe starts with your values and goals, then provides impactful counsel to help you form and implement your financial plan. Click on the link in the description for Backwards Planning Financial and contact Joe today to get started. So, Kevin, as you start to apply some of these things to a calling and to making money, you can also compare them to maybe some bad advice. Yeah. Uh, that we have talked a little bit about, but yes. th- this whole like follow your passion, that sort of thing. <laughs> how, so how do you take these things? Basically, yeah. how do you bring them together? And you say, okay, bottom line, you need to figure out how to make money. Yeah. And yeah. that's a good Christian quality thing to be thinking exactly. about. You need to, as a Christian, surprise, surprise. Yeah. Follow your passion. That was one I think we referenced in, in our first episode together, but that is one of those very bad pieces of advice that will land you $60,000 in debt, graduating with a degree that you cannot put to use. And you're saddled with this debt now and you have to do something with it, right? You're going to have to make money somehow. You're going to have a family to provide for. You need to be mindful about these things. I mean, think about it. You know, the the one who says, uh, well, I I don't really know what I want to do. No, I don't want to be a doctor. Don't want to be an engineer. So I'm not going down that path. You know what? I'm going to follow my passion and I'm going to get that art degree. Four years, <laughs> maybe I get my master's, right? So you even do schooling after that. Uh, you, you took out debt because you weren't working during that time, obviously. And, and you get out on the other side and you're, you're 60, $100,000 in debt and looking around now with a hard pill to swallow that says, you have to pay that back unless Lord Biden forgives it, obviously. But, but I've seen a lot that. of that. Like mm-hmm. people who've got like over $200,000 going to art and dance and yeah. theater type schools. Uh-huh. You get out and they're like, the only job you're qualified to do is like a waitress. Yeah. And you're going to have to That's not pay a good place back. to be. Yeah. Every last penny. Again, unless it's forgiven. <clears throat> it's, it's, right. it's funny because I think about, yeah, as you're, as you're piecing these things together, that means parents too. Like you've got to be involved in helping your kids figure out like if, if there's an interest, tr- there are ways to find careers that match skill sets. But one yeah. of the parts of the equation that's, it's not like materialistic to say, well, how well do those people get paid? Uh-huh. That should be part of your thinking. Yeah. Unless you're independently wealthy or you're supplied by some some patron who says, you know what? I will provide for you and your family the rest of your lives. Yeah. But even that, think about how quickly you can get cut. Yeah. Anything, anything could happen, right? You need to be prepared, especially men, young boys becoming men. You need to be prepared to provide for your family, to share with others who are in need. If you are not able to care for somebody of your own household, Paul says you are worse than an unbeliever, right? Money, money is important. So don't follow bad advice. Bad advice will land you again, $60,000 in debt crying because you have to pay that back on top of all the other stuff. You have to pay your mortgage, you have to pay or or rent, whatever it is, pay all those taxes. That hurts. That hurts really bad. So don't follow that advice. Yeah. So Kevin, as we jump into maybe some of the I guess, fundamental mindset shifts that have to take place. 
Mm-hmm. We start out with the first one, which I'll let you kind of tee up here. Yeah. Where where do you start us off? Yeah. So so let's be clear. As I was thinking through this and just my own reading and past experience and everything, I recognize that this conversation is massive. Oh, big time. It, we we could talk for hours and hours and hours about this. I could recommend book after book after book. But the thing is, we have to boil this down somehow. We have to kind of start somewhere. So I think what would be most useful for for our listeners, yeah. uh, as you're kind of just you know fly on the wall listening to this conversation in some sense, I tried to boil it down to seven fundamental mindset shifts because you're not born with these. That's why we're calling them mindset shifts. If you are used to the hey, I, I started working, you know, seven fifty an hour at McDonald's and then now I got into a painting business and now I made this money. And, and you're kind of just, uh, I, I don't know, I, that's how you work through college and now you're on the other side as an engineer and I get paid this, this amount per hour and I get these benefits. This is for you because we do not, uh, we oftentimes have not grown up with a father maybe who has walked us through these this mindset to have. So this really could be a shift for some people, depending on on your background. But I think if we boil it down to these seven, it'll, it'll be helpful at least just to kind of talk through it. Yeah, perfect. Okay, so so let's start with number one. Number one is businesses are not all that different, especially from one trade to another. And this is what I mean when I say that. This was a huge revelation for me. A, a few years ago, uh, I'd been reading through a few different books, uh, Michael Gerber's The E-Myth Revisited. I don't, I don't know if you've read that before. Yep. But that, that's, there, there are two books, really, that are the fundamental mindset shift for a lot of people that I've talked to, a lot of people in my circles, especially in the real estate circles. It always comes back to these two books. One is Michael Gerber's uh, The E-Myth Revisited, and the other one is Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert mm-hmm. Kiyosaki. Those are are like the go-to, wow, these changed my, literally changed my life because I think about money differently now. Um, if you haven't read both of those, even if you just read the chapter summary book, the little, the little purple version of, of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I think that's what I did at first. Uh, th- those are two excellent starting points uh, because they both address money, but from a different aspect that maybe you haven't thought about, even business, the, the E-Myth Revisited thinks about business differently. But this is what I, what I found through some of my reading. Businesses are not all that different. And this is what I mean. I've used this illustration even in our conversations a, f- a few different times, but think about a doctor, okay? D- doctors make big money. That's why you're going to high school and they say, you should become a doctor or do you want to be an engineer? Because they make big money, they get good benefits. Okay, so let's talk about that. Why does a doctor make so much money? Let, let's just be very uh, concrete here. Let's talk about a pediatrician who makes $250,000 a year. Does he make $250,000 a year simply because he went to medical school? The answer is no. You might've been thinking, listening to this, that the answer is yes. Well, it's because he went to medical school. That's, it's actually a lot more complicated and simple than that. This is why he makes so much money. Ready? Because they have built a business around him providing that value. Hmm. Sure, he went to, to college, he got his degree and, and has an enormous amount of value to provide to his clients, but it's not that simple. It's because he all he does is provides that value. Let, let, let's just role play this a little bit, um, like thinking through this. Imagine if that same pediatrician, he answered the phone calls, he took all the notes, he followed up with your insurance to make sure they paid on time, he... Uh, scheduled your next visit on your way out. He took the kid's weight. 
when they showed up. He made sure it's tracking along the chart, all of that. Imagine if he did all of that, he would not make $250,000 per year. He would make more like 100,000, 150,000, maybe, right? Um, kind of just throwing numbers out there, but he wouldn't make 250,000. This is what I found out. He makes that money because they have built a business around him providing the highest level of value that that business can provide. And that's what he does. He's not allowed to do the other stuff. That's a waste of his time. $250,000 a year, that means he makes about 125 per hour, okay? 125 per hour, he will not make that if he's answering the phone calls, if he's being the assistant, if he's being the the front desk. Um, If he's playing the whole field, he's not going to make as much money as he could. And so what you're saying is like in a doctor's office, they've really built this business to maximize the value that he provides. Yes. To free him up so that he's actually making more money. And it's funny, Kevin, because as we talked about this, a lot of times we think you have, we have like the opposite instinct. I think this is why it's a fundamental mindset shift uh-huh. um, because you're thinking, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm in a startup. I have to do everything. Well, not necessarily. I mean, there are some points where you have to do that, but you should at least be aiming at this point where you're saying, no, we have to build a business around what is our max value yeah, what, what is the value we provide to our yeah. clients and how can we build a business around, uh, may, maybe I have the gifting to do that specific thing. And so now we build a business around me doing that thing. Like it, it really is that simple in some sense, but when we try to play the field, of course you're not making as much money. I think there's actually more money to be made when you go out on your own business because you're accepting the risk. There's also high reward that could come with that. Right. If you're diligent, if you're good at what you do. Really, again, this is why, Sorry, I'm like sidetracking a little bit, but this is why we had to have that first conversation. What is my map? What is my calling? Not Eric's calling, not Brian's calling. Where's not the Dan's value? Calling. Where, where, where can I contribute unique value both because of my talents, but now because of my skills, because our second conversation, I've really committed to becoming the absolute best at what I do. I provide a tremendous amount of value through my vocation to my people, to my clients, And you get paid for that, right? Here's what you don't want to do. You don't want to say, here's where I provide all my value. Now let me do everything else that anybody else could do, right? Think about it. Think think about the plumber. Again, just making this really concrete for everyone. Think about the plumber who's just so good at what he does. Should he be the guy doing scheduling that he's really not good at? Like, let's be completely honest. He's not good at it. He shouldn't be doing the scheduling. He shouldn't be doing the invoicing. There are a lot of things in his business he is not cut out for. But can he turn that wrench? Oh yeah, he can. He's very good at it. Or alternatively, maybe you're thinking about your map and you say, hey, I'll be honest. I'm actually not good at like being a plumber or anything like that. I'm a sales guy. I'm, I'm just really good with people. I, I like being around people. I think I can, I can put on a, a a uh, convincing presentation where I'm demonstrating my value. Uh, But I don't think I should be the plumber guy. I should partner with the plumber guy. I should be the guy who does his sales because he sucks at it. Yeah, I'll I'll be that guy. He is the plumber guy. And now we're both providing to our company the maximum value. And because of that, we're providing as a company the maximum value to our clients and we get paid for it. Yeah. So it also seems like Kevin, there's a number of ways that you could set up your business in a way that is going to work. Yeah. Right. There's not like one. No way. Like the the doctor is one. Yeah. What are some other examples of how you could set things up? Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because there, there really is 
a whole spectrum that you could go through. And oftentimes, remember, if you're starting out your own business, you're going to start small yeah. and, you, and you are playing the field. And that's okay, right? This, uh, what we'll see in, in some of our later principles or uh, mindset shifts, this is a process. This isn't going to be done overnight. So it's okay to start small where you're playing the field and organically work your way. Remember, we were talking about the start stop list yep. or the excite drain list. You could do that process and over time, step further and further and further into what you are just totally gifted in. And maybe you did start playing the field and that's okay. So it would kind of look like this. First, you could be a one-man team. You're, you're doing everything. After that, maybe you hire an assistant. You could hire either a transaction coordinator. A lot of people might not be familiar with that. It's more common in real estate, but I think it should be more common in, in other trades as well. But maybe one man with an assistant. Then maybe you have a team lead like me. Maybe I'd be the team lead. And then I have a crew and we all work together and an assistant. Or maybe you have a CEO with multiple crews overseeing kind of all those. Or you have a COO who pairs with a CEO, right? We're talking about Rocket Fuel, that mm -hmm. other book, Gino Wickman. Yep. Uh, a CEO and a COO who are gifted in their various areas. One's an integrator, one's a visionary. They come together now and they rocket fuel, right? Their business takes off. Or you have a business owner who uh, just hires a CEO, right? Maybe he says, hey, I'm stepping out of this. CEO, COO, he just hires them. Or here's another one that we actually have even in our own church is a guy who says, you know what? I think where I provide value is actually getting the clients. And then I am going to pay other independent contractors. I'm going to sub out this work. So I get it at a certain value. And then I go to my subcontractor and they say, hey, you want this job? This is how much you would get paid. They say yes. And then I, you take a little bit off the top, right? I mean, this is basically what a GC does. Oh, that is what a GC does. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And, and they're overseeing the whole show. They're responsible for it at the end of the day. And, and, and yeah, they, they take their cut, whatever percentage off the top is kind of how they bill. So there are so many different ways that you could go about this. But, but again, it, it, it goes back to that, that first mindset shift is that this could be your business too. You could be the doctor of your business. If you're mindful about it, if you grow this organically, if you apply your excite versus drain, your stop versus start, and, and you systematically over time as you're growing your business, step into where you want to be. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So Kevin, you take all that. How would you then connect that to your map? Yeah, that's a good question. So again, this is why these conversations build. Mm -hmm. Because to be completely honest, not everyone is cut out to be the CEO of their company. That's kind of a brutal truth. But one thing I found in uh, secular business literature is they almost talk as if everyone should be following that path where they eventually are the CEO owner of their company. And, and if we're just like leveling with one another right now, that's not true. Mm -mm. Not everyone is cut out to be the CEO. And I would even say, I would, I would probably even go further. Like most people aren't. no. You need somebody who can drive that ship. You, you like need that's a, captain. a specific skill set. Yes. You know, and, and so you, you need to be okay. If you're the guy who kind of started this business uh, and you're growing it, uh, just be mindful of that. You might have to fire yourself one day and hire somebody else who's way better, who can take the company further than you would have. Maybe you step back into the COO function, right? Um, it, Okay, again, tangent. We were just reading Plutarch the, this last term, and we were reading uh, through Aristides, the life of Aristides. And it was really interesting. He was uh, Aristides the just, right? He, was, he, he would literally lose money 
rather than gain money by deceit. Hmm. Uh, like that's what he was known for. Aristides the Just. Anyways, when they came together and they're in the Persian Wars, he had another commander, Pausanias, and he was from the Spartans. And uh, there was a lot of butting heads at first. And you know what Aristides ended up doing? He said, you know what, Pausanias, run the show. You're going to do a great job. I'll be your right-hand man. And they were wonderful together. They were great together because Aristides recognized, I probably shouldn't, shouldn't be the guy up front. And, and that's okay because I'm going to be a lot more effective as his right-hand man. Eventually, he ended up taking his place because Pausanias kind of um, messed things up and, and frustrated a lot of people. But, but that recognition, that could be you, right? As a business owner where you say, hey, I, maybe I shouldn't be at the helm. That, well, that's okay. Well, and another thing that I, I found out, um, you know, one of the problems is if, if you're a CEO type, uh, in a lot of businesses, I had, I had been in that position fundamentally, whether it was editor-in-chief or CEO, yeah. because you work your way up, meaning you know how to do all the jobs from yes. top to bottom. Uh-huh. But then the problem becomes- Do you do all the jobs? <laughs> yeah, that you do all the jobs. And then your great discipline that you have to discipline yourself is to say- Okay, leading the organization is not the same thing as doing all the tasks. It's this sort of uh, working in versus on. Yes, which I think we'll, yeah, which is Gerber. Yeah, that, that's Gerber. Yeah, yeah, working in your business, or sorry, working on your business, not in your business. If you're in it, if you're down in the weeds every day, if you're down in the trenches, a lot of times you you miss the big picture vision. You stuff. do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and with this, maybe just to close out this uh, this first mindset shift. I want to give a few book recommendations Mm -hmm. just because I think these are excellent, really helpful as you're thinking through this. And it has a common thread. There's a thread that goes through all three of these. The first one is a book that I might've mentioned last time, Who. Mm -hmm. It's called Who, Blue and and White Cover. Uh, Smart is the author of that one. His dad is the one who did top grading. But again, this is like in a more condensed version. He says that you want to hire the specialist, not the generalist. The generalist can, can kind of play the field. It's the specialist, though, that you want to, like, let, let's take the CEO. Once you recognize talents versus skills, you begin hiring for talents. And now you want a CEO who has CEO talents. Mm-hmm. You can teach him the skills, maybe, right? If, if you're willing to work with him, if he's willing to grow, if it's the right guy. But, but that book is excellent as far as, like, hiring the different uh, chess pieces that, that you need to, to have a thriving business. That's the first one. The second one we've mentioned is good to great. So Jim Collins on that one, he says, get the right people on the bus first and then find them the seat. That's a really interesting concept because if you can find really great people and you understand talents versus skills, you can look at their talents and then you can start, well, Hey, I think you'd probably be the best fit for this job. I think you talked about that with a previous um, employer as well. Yeah. And I think that it tends to work better if you are, if your organization is somewhat large, like if you have a lot of hiring capital, for example, when you're a small business and you're like, okay, I can hire one person. You can't quite follow. You don't have that flexibility. No, No, that's an excellent point. So that's, so that's Jim Collins, good to great. The third one is first break all the rules. And that was one where I read uh, Appendix C, I think it was last time, just to give a few examples of talents versus skills. He says that the manager, as opposed to the leader, the manager sees diversity and understands how it contributes to the whole. Mm-hmm. So if you want to read that book, that's really helpful as far as kind of getting more in this mindset of like, you might not be the best fit to be the CEO. And mm. that's that's okay, right? But you can see a common thread in all three of these. They recognize that you hire for talents. 
You don't even hire for skills. Hiring for skills is expensive because you're asking somebody to come in with everything already dialed in. That's really expensive. That, that's really hard to do. But if you can hire for talents and you can train skills, then you could recognize, okay, this is probably your best place in our organization. This is where I want you. You're a man of high character. You're going to add to this company. I can tell already. This, I think, would be the best fit for you. And then you try them out. And if they suck, you put them in a different spot or fire them. (laughs) There's always that. There is always that. that. (laughs) Yes. That's a little too well. A part of the job. Uh, (laughs) Kevin, as we move on now to the fundamental shift number two, yeah. we're going to be talking about understanding risk. Why Why is this an important thing to have a mindset shift on? Yeah, especially when it comes to business, yeah. right? Especially when it comes to business. Because uh, we do have conversations, right? Understanding risk and your boys and all of that stuff. Very fundamental even for this conversation. But as it pertains to business, risk is very important to understand because it really plays back into that principle of high risk, high reward, mm-hmm. right? When you make an investment, Maybe it's a certain stock or something. You would kind of start speaking this language. Well, this is really high risk, but it's high reward as well. Right. Same thing with business. Business is high risk. Let's take the man who has three kids and he has a wife. He needs to feed and clothe and house and all of that. And he says, I want to get into this business venture. Okay, cool. But recognize it's high risk. Yes, you could make more money than your, your desk job, whatever you're doing before. You could make more money if there's value that you're actually providing to your clients and you could sell all that kind of stuff. But it's high risk, high reward. What an employer does, and this is where, I don't know if you want to say it's that the boomer mindset or, or whatever it is, but we get locked into this where we're giving advice to our high school boys, especially where we're saying, you know what you need to do with your life? You need to go find a very secure job the pay will be decent, but you're going for security. Yeah. That's, that's what you need. And, and it's, it's emasculating in some sense where the boys are like, I wanted to go, go do something great with my life. I wanted to go be challenged and I'm going to go sit at a desk for the next 40 years and, and, and not get challenged. Yeah. And a lot of the, the trade-off is menial work. Yeah. Like you're trading menial work for security. So you'll be secure, but a lot of the stuff that is risky and dangerous yeah. That's where you're like, but that's actually the thing I wanted to do. Well, and if you zoom out a little bit, yeah. you got to recognize that the only reason they're hiring you is because they can make money off of you. I, I mean, let's just make it very simple. Yep. They are hiring you because with the pay they're giving you and the benefits they're giving you, they took on the high risk, high reward. But now they're in, in such a point with their business that the risk does go down over time. You have a, you have an established clientele. You have right like business risk actually does go down after you're out of that startup That's phase. Why your startups are so risky. Yes, very very risky. But once you get out of that stage, you uh, don't have the risk as much. Now you're hiring other people where you're telling them, "Hey, come work for me." Low risk. You don't say low reward, but that's, but that really is the truth. Low, low risk, come, come work with me. Also low reward, but, but low risk. Well, and, and, and that's, what's appealing for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people have kind of figured out, uh, as we've talked about these head conversations, they're like, if you're doing it for somebody else and you're really good, you can probably make more money doing it for yourself. Yes. Can't, can, can, can it, it, it takes it, time to build that up too. It does. Like it, and you know, Chris Wiley's talked about it. I've talked about it. I worked for a long time in corporate America and I realized I'm going to have to build, it's basically apprenticeship mm-hmm. while getting paid, but I'm going to yeah. have to spend 10 years building a skill set yeah. um, where I do have to work for somebody else. 
Yeah. But the mindset was always, yeah, I want to eventually be able to do this for myself, even though I knew it was going to take a long time, yeah. which is fine. But I, I also think part of it is a lot of people will ask, like, why is my ceiling so low? <laughs> yeah. And not realize why that is. Yes. Yeah, it's because they're making money off of you. And at a certain point, they it's not really worth their money or their time. So you come in and you're saying, wow, look, I, I started at $30 an hour. This is going to be great. I'm going to get my pay raises, all of that. And then the next pay raise comes around and, hey, we're going to do you a solid. 30, 25. We're, we're, we're going to knock you up. <laughs> we're going to put, put you up to, to $31 an hour. What do you think? you accept. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, thanks. I guess I'll take my wife out to McDonald's for dinner to (laughs) celebrate. Yeah. Cause you run into that, that issue that your ceiling is so low. You, you walk in the door of those businesses and you're already hitting your head on the ceiling. And a lot of times I've worked in businesses where you've seen this all the time where it's like, you know, even if you're, you know, sales tends to have high commission, some big deals, depending on your business. Yeah. But I've heard guys say this to me, like, okay, I sold almost $4 million worth of product this year. Mm -hmm. I got like a 3%. And then you're looking at that and you're like, wait a minute. Like compared to what I brought the company. Yes. I didn't get very much. Okay. So sales is a perfect example too, because especially if you're purely commission-based, it is almost no risk to your employer and very high reward. Because if you don't bring in any money, well- They don't have to pay commission. That's okay. They don't have to pay you. They weren't paying you per hour. But if you do bring in money- they're clearly making way more off of you. I think Jim Rohn was, uh, there's some video I saw recently where he was saying that he said your economics or our economics in general are determined by how much value you provide to the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So think about this. Is there a way that you, if you were uh, maybe working for somebody else, if you made them $2,500,000 as a company, would they, would they pay you 250,000 a year? They totally would. No, no, they totally would. If if you were only getting paid two fifty and you made them two million five hundred, you're totally worth two fifty to them, right? You could. It's all about how much value you provide, yeah. Then to the marketplace, but that's what an employer is able to do because they took the risk on themselves. They built the business up. They're hiring you in, and your ceiling, right? You 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 really do have this ceiling that you're bumping up against because they have to take a margin on top of that. But when you own the business. There, you don't have that margin, right? You might be hiring other people and having this consideration too. And especially if you hire Christians, remember you need to pay them well. Don't forget that. Again, that's this whole conversation too. Because uh, not everyone's meant to be the CEO. Not everyone's meant to be the business owner. Some people are meant to answer the phone calls. Maybe that's what they're gifted at. Pay them well. It's also interesting uh, reading Thomas Sowell talking about economics. So there's two things in play here. One is that when you start a business, you're assuming all the risk, which is why you receive such a yeah. substantial reward in that. But it, it's also part of the risk is also, I, I don't remember what the percentages are here, but like most businesses fail. Yeah, I think it's it's about 50. I've heard two different numbers. I've heard 80% in the first five years, but I, the more common one as I was looking it up, I think it's 50% okay. in the first five years. There's a but lot of risk. Every one out of two businesses are going to fail in the first five years. It, it's risky. And there, there's another one where, in the podcast we're doing with uh, Lucas from T-Rex Arms, it's a very small percentage of companies that make it past 10 years. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. longevity, yeah. Um, the further out you get, the likelihood of stability increases, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, no, it does. So if if given given enough time, again, you you get settled, you, hire, you can hire talent because you have the income coming in. Uh, so a lot of that helps. I will say, though, even the startup cycle, though, 
you have the startup at first and then you have these dips kind of as you're going up. There's another book about this. Uh, it's called Scaling Up as a little purple cover with like a little green thing going through. Um, Vern Harnish is is the author of that one. And he talks you through this whole, it's it's a bumpy road. It's definitely a bumpy road. And there are different skill sets that you need at different stages. If you're a one-man show, it's different from if you get your first assistant. And that's different from when you have your first crew. And that's different from when you have 10 people in your company versus 100 versus 1,000. Very different along the way. And you have to be able to grow with that and manage that growth. That's an excellent book for that, by the way. But we, we really just keep coming back to this idea that it's high risk, high reward, low risk, low reward. If, if you go into the business and you're hitting your head against the ceiling when you walk in the front door, you should maybe reconsider. Just, just think through, is this the right fit for you? Is there a way that you as a man having to provide for a wife and kids, especially, that you could maybe go out on your own? And again, do this organically. Don't jump ship. We keep warning against that. I think that's a, a really relevant warning. Yeah, I think that's really good. Uh, one of the other things, Kevin, if you're, you know, maybe you're one of the guys in the church who has money, maybe you're a parent who has money, uh-huh. they can also assist in a lot of the startup process. Oh, yeah. If you have, definitely if you have an investor, I think the most practical one really is just your parents. So if you are fortunate enough to be a parent listening to this before your young boy goes out, leaves the nest, think about this. And I gave this encouragement even in the first podcast we did together, but Think about how much you can actually minimize that risk for your son. And, and it a, doesn't mean that you have to go dump $2 million into a project. Oh, no. I, you don't even have to give any money. Yeah. Well, honestly, th- think about this. You don't have to give any money, but give him the fallback. Maybe he is living in the basement for a few years while his other friends are in college, and he's really hitting hitting this hard, building up a plumbing business, a painting business, or whatever it is, learning the skills. He's identified the talents. You've helped him through this process, but now you are giving him, hey- you can stay in the room downstairs. I'll, I'll let you stay for three years. That's what I'm giving you. Three years covered. Think about what that does for him. Just even for his psyche, there's a, there's a bad sense in which that could be, well, I can float now. Or if you have somebody that you're actually training uh, to be really intentional at this time, you've almost eliminated risk for him. What if he goes out, crashes and burns? It's fine. Oh, okay. He's fine. He'll, he'll, he'll pick it up. He's back home, right? It's not like he had to go out and was paying $2,000 in rent every month and putting <laughs> everything on his credit cards. And, and then he burns. That would suck. That would be really bad. But if he's at home, if he's under your shelter for some time, as he is going out and taking on a lot of risk on himself, yeah, this doesn't have to be multi-million dollars. That's not what we're talking about. We're saying somebody who's going to go out there, hit it hard, work really hard, get the skills that he needs, and actually build this business around himself. You've helped him through that startup phase that people were having to, uh, during the startup phase, pull money out of the business to pay for their mortgage. That's way harder to do. So if you're a parent who's thinking through this, uh, that could be a very valuable thing. Don't let them coast. But if you could recognize this as you shifting some of the risk so that he doesn't have to take it purely on himself, now you have low risk, high reward still. Yep. He still has the reward dangling there that he could go for. At least that risk is mitigated quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, Kevin, it brings us to the next point on our list, which, man, was a huge shift in my thinking. Uh-huh which was the, the getting away from the hourly mindset. Yeah, so so number 3, focus on getting paid for the value you bring, not the hours you put in. I I will tell you, this is hard to do. Well, I I especially noticed it when I shifted to 1099 work as opposed to W2. Yeah. When I was working as a contractor because I started realizing, wait a minute. 
I can get this job done in two hours or eight, and I'm going to get paid for the finished product. Yeah. Well, there was actually a lot of incentive for me. It was like, well, just get it done. And then you yes. can go do something else. You're going to be more efficient with your time. It was oh, much yeah. more freeing than other jobs that I'd worked in the past. It's like I'd finish a project and they'd be like, well, you're here for eight hours. So you're here no matter what. I guess you better find something else well, to do. Well, and that's kind of appealing to the lazy bum. Yes. To be honest, it says, hey, as long as you're here and you punch the clock, you're going to get paid. But but this even goes to something, and, and I want you to unpack this point, but Joel Salatin said this uh-huh. about children. He said, yeah, I would have my kids collect eggs and I would pay them for it. Yeah. And he goes, I never, ever, ever tell my kids, hey, you have to collect eggs for two hours. He said, oh. I pay per finished egg. Mm-hmm. And he said, it's amazing because they get more done. They don't break any eggs and they're much more efficient at it. Yeah. Then if you said, hey, you just have to do this for two hours. Well, it unlocks your creativity as well. Because yeah, if, if you're fairly driven and you don't want to waste your life and yeah. you, you say, well, hmm. I could just sit here all day and do this slowly and complain all day, or I could figure out how to do this faster and more efficiently. Uh, it brings up a, a thought that I, I've heard before. There's a guy who I think I think he was a waiter or something like that, and what he ended up doing is he would pay the the busboys to do a portion of his work, and he would give them a share of the tips. And it allowed him to cover way more tables oh, smart. than he would have been able to otherwise. So again, going back to that idea of him providing his unique value to yeah. more and more clients, he was able to do that, paid them like they got like half, half basically for every, for every extra table I get to take, you get, you get half of that. So like, it's a win-win for everyone. And uh, he was, he was like paying these bus boys and he was just doing way but more But he's making more money. Yes. Because instead of just going by the hour, he's thinking about how much value he provides. Mm. And then tries to provide that to more people, right? So he's already benefiting from it. But if you can, if you can take this fundamental mind shift, mindset shift away from the hours that you put in and more towards the value that you present to your clients or, or to the company or whatever it is, however you're looking at it, this will, this will be so helpful for you in getting you to think creatively, getting you to think about passive income even, but, but especially for those who have just been locked into this hourly mindset for a long time, it's going to be hard to break out of it. Well, and, and it'll kind of lead into the next point, but it sort of ties into the hedgehog principle uh-huh. in the sense that it's it's focusing you to essentially look at your job and what you do, your calling, and sort of a whether you have a formal one or not, but a P&L statement, profit and loss. And you're looking at that sucker and you're saying, okay, where's the actual monetary value in what I'm doing? Cause a lot yeah. of times, Kevin, I've done things and it's like, okay, with the publishing, it's like, okay, we're going to, we're going to do this style of book and you do it, you invest the hours, you start adding everything up and you look at your returns and you're like, this is not profitable. Yeah. If you look at, you know, how much you have to play the numbers game. Yeah. yeah. But other times, and I think this is what we're kind of getting at is like, what are the things that you do that bring the most value? And then in a, and in the marketplace, you're going to see that economically. Mm-hmm. We want to maximize the efforts that we put toward those things. Yeah. Because that's going to better returns. Well, and maybe tying something together that we didn't quite pull out of our second conversation, but now it's appropriate to bring out is in conversation number two, we're trying to maximize the value, mm-hmm. right? Because you're identifying your talents and adding the skills yeah. over time. You need to get better and better and better and better and add more and more and more value to your clients. Uh, to your clientele. Well, think about it now. When you're adding more value, what does that mean? That means you're going to be making more money too. I, think about it just, just very practically. If, if I'm way better at what I do than anybody else, 
I'm going to get paid for it. Like, like that's how this works, right? So if you think about value, and maybe it's good to clarify even what I'm talking about when I say value. When I say value, I mean, what is X, Y, or Z, this thing, this service, what is this worth to me right now with my present understanding? And, and we'll come back to why that the present understanding is important as it plays into sales too mm-hmm. and kind of talking that up. But think about the man who buys a bottle of water, okay? He pays, you know, if he buys in a big pack, $25 or 25 cents a, a piece. If, if he buys it just from from somebody, it's maybe like a dollar or a dollar 50 in, in one of those um, machines. But think about the man who is in, who's traveling in Cambodia and just wants clean, pure water. Is it worth a dollar fifty to him? Probably more, to be completely honest. It's probably worth more than a dollar fifty to him at that moment. Its value is higher than a dollar fifty. So don't confuse value and price. Mm-hmm. Value is actually going to be relative um, to the person in their present moment with their present understanding. In your market. Yeah, in, in your market. So so if you're thinking about when when you're providing value to somebody else. You're thinking about how is this going to help them in such a way that they say, I am willing to pay this price for this value. If they're getting more value out of it than the price they're giving away, let's say you're doing a painting job, $5,000 for the job, and they say, you know what? Absolutely not. I would never paint this house. I just don't have the time. I don't have the tools. I don't have the resources. I would get frustrated and yell at my kids and my cat. You know what I mean? Like uh, It's worth $5,000 to them value wise, but maybe to a painter, like my dad growing up, right? He might say, I'm not going to pay somebody else $5,000 to paint my house, right? Because I could paint it myself and I could do it way better anyways. So, so when we're talking about value in conversation number two, increasing the value that we provide to other people, you have to link that to now the economic driver. I'm trying to make money. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm, I'm trying to make money for the good work that I'm doing for other people okay, well, I want to get better and better and better at the value that I'm providing. And a price is going to go with that. You're going to get paid better for it too. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, As I said, ties to number four, and you're talking about scaling the ladder to higher and higher dollar productive activities. So this seems to make quite a bit of sense. What are the things you are going to make the most money doing? Yeah, Which hopefully reflects the value in the marketplace. To some extent it does. Yeah. Closely. And then you want to do more of that. Yeah. So it goes back to number one. Remember we said that businesses are really not all that different. The reason the doctor makes so much money is because he is doing the highest dollar productive activity. This is just another way of saying he is providing the most value for the time that he puts in. Okay. So instead of answering the phone, instead of writing up the emails, all that kind of stuff, he trains to be really good at being a doctor and he provides that value. In every business, you actually have these. You have a whole scale. So uh, let, let's take painter. The, the painter, he, again, has to do a lot of the same things. He has to go out and bid. He has to, you know, have some email correspondence or, or a phone or whatever it is where he says, okay, we accept your bid or they, they accept the bid. Okay, we're going to be there on, you know, on this day at this time. It's going to take us this long. This is how we do business. Uh, this is how you pay afterwards. There's going to be that conversation. Right. There's going to be the actual doing of the business. There's going to be the collecting of the invoice afterwards. There's, I mean, there, there are all these things that he could be doing, but where does he provide the most value? Well, and people could argue back on this. There's actually two places. The first one is the doing of the job. Right. The second one is actually getting more jobs. So there's kind of two ways you could look at that. But in every business, there are higher or lower dollar productive activities. 
Again, making this very concrete. When you go out to bid a job in painting, let's say you make $250 per hour, because that's actually not unreasonable to say. $250 per hour that you are out bidding jobs. You might not get all those jobs, but for the time that you put in, that turns into elsewhere, $250 times however many hours you put in, okay? But if you are on the phone or you're being the assistant or something like that, maybe it's $20 an hour. So if you could think about this very practically, okay, let me take a step back. Is it possible for me to spend more time doing the higher dollar productive activities and less time doing the other ones because I just pay somebody else to do it? Absolutely. The same thing that we talked about in the doctor's office, you can pay somebody to do the $20 per hour activities and you can focus your time, your efforts on the higher and higher and higher dollar productive activities. Yeah, it, it, it is a huge, especially as you go through your career, I think you start to realize like even if you work at the bottom in a company, you're, you're looking at the tasks. And that's what I would tell young guys who are new in a, a profession or field. Look around the job site. You know, who's driving off and which vehicles and how did Mm -hmm. they get there? Yeah. And a lot of times it really actually is tied to which work is highest yield. Yeah. When we've talked about that really practical test case, if, if you can't really think through this well, or you're, you're getting kind of confused on which tasks do I kind of sub out or pay to somebody else and which tasks do I keep for myself? This is a really helpful tool. I think if you make $50,000 a year, you cut that 50 and half 25. That means you make about $25 an hour, okay? Again, this is like an average, but $25 an hour will get you about $50,000 a year. So think about that. If that's that's what you make, then anything less than $25 per hour, you should pay somebody else to do. Because if you think about it, that 25 is an average because you're playing the field. If you can pay somebody else to do the, the $15, the $20 an hour activities and be wise now with your time, and spend it on your 40, 50, $100 per hour activities, you on average now, your average time spent, you're going to make more money per hour. So maybe now you've bumped yourself up to $60 per hour on average because you paid somebody else for the other stuff. You're not doing 25 anymore. Now you're doing 60. And once you get to 60, now that's your new average. And so anything under 60, if you can, again, you have to have the business coming in to be able to do this. You have to grow organically. But now you pay somebody to do everything under 60, and that bumped you back up even higher to now you're making $80 per hour, right? That's something just very practically, if you're looking at all of your activities, uh, it's a helpful test case, I think, in thinking through what should I or what shouldn't I be doing. When you see this a lot with scale, for, for guys who are unwilling to do that, you generally, your company won't grow and scale up. I've seen this in construction where it's like, maybe you're the guy at the top, but you kind of do everything. You sort of refuse to hire people. You're happy with what happens, whatever. Maybe you're a $500,000 a year company at that point. Yeah. Until you're willing to scale and delegate and have pretty clear divisional labor, mm-hmm. you know, once you get those things, that's when you're a two, ten, twenty million $20 million a year company. But you almost never see companies that are like that generally. Uh, where it's just one guy who tries to do everything. Yeah. It's much harder to, because you don't have these breakdowns and pay our tasks. Yeah. Yeah. And this, let, let's be completely honest too. Us talking about this, again, fairly simple. Landing this in practice, much harder. Oh, big time. Right? So that, so when when we're saying it, even as we're saying it like this, we recognize we're saying simple, not easy. Yes. Okay. And, and that's okay. Just recognize if you can have this mindset shift and apply this, 
day after day after day in your business, this should give you the tools to be able to step back over time and start making your strategic decisions. If you have a a direction that you're going because you have this mindset shift now, you know what you're aiming at, which also means you know what not to aim at, how not to spend your time. If you wanted to go for the holy grail kind of (laughs) in, in the business world, you would be shooting for that target of passive income which is where you grow and grow and grow in your business, higher and higher and higher dollar productive activities to the point that you get, you reach actually passive income. And that's where I put in zero hours now and I still get a financial return. That's kind of what a lot of people, especially in the business world are aiming at. I'm not talking about retirement necessarily. I'm, I'm just saying that on the side, even you would have passive income that comes in because you set up an asset and a business is an asset, not just real estate. A business is an asset, can be an asset at least, where it's going to bring in passive income for you if you have gone up this scale, up this ladder and and fired yourself a few different times. Yeah, it's really helpful. Red meat is a staple of a healthy protein-packed diet, but not all meat is created equal. That's why I buy my meat from Salt and Strings Butchery. Salt and Strings is owned and operated by my friends, Quinn and Samantha Bible, And the meat they offer is raised, harvested, and processed exclusively in Southern Illinois. It's cut and packaged by my friends Quinn and Anthony. And not only is it the best meat I've ever had, well, all their meat is sourced from local farms that share our Christian values. Salt and Strings is now offering a beef and hog box that can be shipped directly to your door. The 15-pound beef box features 100% black Angus beef and includes ribeyes, T-bones, sirloin, chakros, fajita meat, and ground beef. You can order your beef box today for just $259. They will send it directly to your door. The hog box is $239 and features premium Duroc pork, including eight thick pork chops, one of my all-time favorites, pork steaks, cured and sliced bacon, ground pork, bratwurst, and breakfast sausage links. You can place your order today at saltandstrings.com or use the link in the show notes. And also be sure to follow Salt and Strings on Instagram. We'll also include the link in the show notes. So Kevin, that ties into number five now, uh, which I want you to unpack for us uh, about lead generation and doing the business. What's the difference? Why is this important? I kind of mentioned this before actually, but we have to separate in our minds, number five, separate lead generation from the doing of the business. Mm. So lead generation is you bringing in more customers, more clients, more business, and then you have the doing of the business. You, You almost, in your mind, you, you kind of have to keep these separate or else you run into this problem. And again, this is what everybody does. So if you, if you hear me saying this and you're like, that's me, so is everybody else. Okay. So, so don't feel too bad, but we, we need to work on this. It's too easy. Once you have business coming in to get so focused on taking care of that business, which is good. It's an important thing, but you as the CEO wearing that CEO cap or the visionary cap or the business owner cap, whatever you want to call this, if you get so focused on the doing of the business, eventually you might have business dry up or you're not going to grow to the to your full potential where you could have been focused on growing this business instead of simply just doing it. Maybe you need to pay somebody else to, to help you do the business, to take care of the clients, but you need to go get more clients. So a fundamental mindset shift, especially if you've grown up in the, the W-2 world where, hey, you, you punch the clock, you get paid, paid the money. Uh, if, if you've grown up in that world, you need, 
and you're stepping out of that for the first time, you're already needing to separate this in your mind. That it's it's not it won't be good enough for your potential to simply do the business. Mm-hmm. You also need to be focused on growing the business, and the way you grow the business is you get more clients. And there's a lot that you can do kind of on that front, but but it really is it's too easy to get caught up in the doing. So I really wanted to say that up front, and, and maybe to build off of a conversation that we had last time. Remember we said in uh, our second conversation that this really comes down to your character and your competence. Yeah. Your character and your competence. Do I like you? Can I trust you? Okay, character. And then competence. Are you the best at what you do? Or am I knowledgeably having to lower my expectations and settle to work with you? Okay, character and competence. You need to work on this, right? But there's a third one too that I didn't mention last time. You have character, you have competence, but you also have communication. Hmm. And this is going to play into what we were talking about before and how I kind of defined value. Again, with your present understanding, what is this worth to me with my present understanding? Because when you own a business, let's say you're painting, a big part of what you do is going to be sales. When you're getting more clients and maybe uh, you're going out for a bid and you're trying to, it's one thing to go out for a bid rip off your piece of paper and say $5,000. Do you want to do it or not? There's a very big difference between that and preemptively talking through with your potential client, with this prospect about what you guys do in the business, how you take care of your clients, uh, how many bad experiences you've heard about, about uh, not business owners, homeowners doing this on their own and just you know like whack jobs coming out because they're settling for the lowest price. You're preemptively answering a lot of objections that they already have in their mind, you are through your communication actually helping you get more clients. So if character and communi- or if uh, if character and competence answered the, are you going to be good at what you do? Am I going to work with you in the first place? Now, when we talk about communication, we're saying getting more clients, more people that you can add this value to that you can actually help. So it really comes back to that you have character, you have competence and communication. You can't just focus on the doing of the business. You need to also focus on the lead generation, getting more leads, getting more business to grow organically. Yeah. And I think that's one reason it seems cliche when you look at company structures, but like they were actually smart to have, you know, an operations department and a marketing department, Mm -hmm. sales and marketing, sometimes different. But, you know, it really is like, well, you need the people who are focused exclusively in some sense on the execution of the business. Yeah. But a lot of times what I would hear from companies is like, well, we have enough business right now, so we don't need to focus on lead Mm -hmm. generation. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, but you're not really thinking about the future because those things can dry up pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people who are really focused on the operation side, they love doing the actual work. I've often fallen into the mistake of this where I've said, my work should speak for itself. Yeah. Well, and, and there is a sense in, in which that's true, right? Repeat and referral customers, that, that's what you want, period. Yes. Yep. But at the same time, there's, a, there's another sense in which you're cultivating those relationships. You don't just let those dry out on the vine. Yes. You, you should do an excellent job, agreed. You should let your work speak for itself, agreed. However, you want to cultivate, if you're focused on repeat and referral, you also need to cultivate those relationships so that they bring in more leads. Yes. Right? So that they're saying, hey, Eric's the guy. If you want, if you need painting done, he, you're going to pay for it. Let's be completely honest, but it is so worth it. 
because of the work that he does for you, right? You, you need that, but you need to cultivate those relationships. So you have to focus on the focus on that lead generation, not, not just the doing of the business. Yeah. And it seems like, uh, I think you mentioned this earlier, was it Gerber's work yeah. on this concept that a lot of people had brought up to me. We had some business consulting done, uh, which is where I learned about rocket fuel. Okay. Uh, but it was really helpful because the guy was talking about, yeah, it's different to be working in versus on your business. Mm-hmm. And particularly if you're in the COO role, you know, you may be, hey, maybe you're more the in guy, but the CEO, hey, you're kind of more on, you're working on the business. Yeah. Some of those roles are going to vary and you kind of have to do both. But basically, you don't want to get so caught in the weeds that you miss the big picture. Yeah, you need some kind of emotional distance almost from your business so that you can step back. This is why a lot of the the best thinkers, uh, the, the best CEOs, the best uh, managers of companies will actually take time away where they'll they'll go for a week. I can't remember who it was. If it was Steve, Bill Gates Steve Jobs did or, that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like pe- people do this where they go out for a week, no cell phone communication, right? Like just to think, think week. Right. Like that's, that's, that is what I'm doing during this time because I am kind of wrapped up in my business. Let's be honest. You're, you're the captain of the ship, right? You're, you're, you're there, you're, you're giving orders, you're all receiving, in. you're receiving information, all of this. And so one helpful strategy is to take a day, take a week, take a few days, whatever it is to step back from your business so that you can work on it and not just in it. But again, lead generation is a big part of that working on your business to let it grow, grow organically. Yeah, super helpful. Uh, Kevin, the next one that we've got to talk about is lead versus lag measures. Yeah. That doesn't explain itself. Well, I, so I was going to say, have you heard of that before? Lead, lead I have. versus lag? Okay, so, yep. so lead measures versus lag measures. I got this first, and I'm not sure if he's the first guy who said it, but the four disciplines of execution. Okay. I think it's uh, Chris McChesney, uh, but he he talked about this idea, lead measures versus lag measures. In other words- and I'll, I'll come back to this in a second. Lead measures. You need to focus on lead measures. Lead measures are the things that are going to move the needle for whatever you're trying to do. Here's, here's the example, and I think it makes it, it illustrates the point really well. Okay, you're trying to lose weight. If you were to say, you know what, I'm, I'm sitting at 200 pounds. I want to get back down to 175. Okay, starting today, I wrote that down and I'll, I'll check, it, check in again next week. Okay, cool. So I hop on the scale next Saturday, whatever it is, and you recognize- Nothing I'm actually 202 pounds now. <laughs> it went up. <laughs> yeah, it actually went up. And so you start to think, well, what can I do to change this? Right. When you look at a lag measure, a lag measure is something like this: the weight on the scale. It is fundamentally a rear view mirror kind of picture. You can't really do anything it's about results. it at that point. It's it's well, that's that's where I am. And even if you were to to take your weight every day during the week, what are you making adjustments on? All you've, all you've given was the final product of, well, now I'm 202 pounds, but I haven't really done anything about it. So that's a lag measure. The lead measure is, a, is the thing that's going to move the needle, or at least very reasonably will be the thing to move the needle on the lag measure. So in this case, the obvious one would be I'm counting calories. So I'm looking at my diet. What am I doing for my diet? And I'm exercising. Well, now during the week, I can say I'm going to exercise five days a week for 30 minutes uh, each of those five days, and I'm going to restrict myself to 2,000 or less calories, right? I'm just going to make it really concrete. That's what we're going to do. And then now I hop on the scale and I hit 202. I don't look at my 202 and say, well, what can I do about that? I look at my, did I do my lead measures? Did I actually do those five days a week? And did I stay under my calorie count? If I didn't do that, 
then I need to change my lead measures. That's what I'm focusing on. Who cares about the lag measure in some sense? Because you need to put all of your effort behind lead measures. Okay, let's make the translation now. If you were to say, I want to grow my business, maybe maybe you actually said that to me. You said, hey, my, my business is flagging and, and I, I've been trying to do this repeat and referral thing. It just, it just seems like, again, they're drying out on the vine. I don't know what's going on. And I said, okay, so how many phone calls have you made this week? And you said zero because I, I want my work to speak for itself. Well, then that's where you're going to focus. How many, how many thank you cards have you written? How many phone calls have you made? How many uh, business relationships have you cultivated? Not just your clients, but business relationships, um, uh, business to business. How many of those have you cultivated to grow your business? If you say zero and then keep getting frustrated that your business is flagging or that it's not growing like you totally thought it would, like everyone said, it'd be super easy, right? Again, danger of this conversation. It's not, it's simple. It's not easy. Are you doing the work? Are you focusing on the lead measures? That's a fundamental mindset shift. Get away from the lag measures, focus on the lead measures. Yeah, and a really helpful book uh, that I've read on this, Atomic Habits, James Clear. Yep. Yeah, he kind of talks that. about you know how like your goals even can be overrated in the sense that unless your goals take you to a place where you're changing your lead measures fundamentally, yeah. it, it doesn't matter. And and on the flip side, you know, James will talk about, you know, football coaches who said, I don't even care mm. about focusing on the end result. Yep. Let's just, you know, Nick Saban, let's focus on the process. Yeah. If we get the process right, we take care of everything in practice, we're prepared for the game. Lo and behold, we're a winning team. The, the game takes care of itself, right? Yes. It's kind of that mindset. Yep. Yeah, you have to focus on the lead measures. Are you actually putting your weight behind? That's funny. That wasn't a pun on purpose. But are, <laughs> are you actually putting your weight behind uh, the lead measures that will very likely, reasonably affect the lag measures? If you are, then that's where your focus needs to be. Lead measures, not lag measures. Yeah, really good point. Kevin, we're going to wrap up with number seven, uh, millionaires. I want to talk about millionaires because <laughs> yeah. that's what we all want to be. <laughs> that's what we want to be. Uh, so number seven is really kind of a throw in here. I was thinking about at the end and I, I, I put, and I took this from, from another guy I, I follow on Instagram. I can't remember his name now, but millionaires start or end up in real estate. Hmm. I don't want to say period afterwards, but that's, that's almost how I feel about it. Uh, Cause I know there are exceptions, but millionaires start or end up in real estate. So what I mean by that is somebody might start uh, real estate investing and then eventually they're, they're millionaires because they have so many assets and uh, their their net worth is actually a million plus. Okay. See, I thought you were going to say millionaires start or end up in Bitcoin. <laughs> or in Bitcoin. It is. It's all about Bitcoin. It's all about Bitcoin. Uh, but millionaires start or end up in real estate. So It's really interesting. I, I just want to interject. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so I used to work for KSE, Kroenke Sports and Entertainment. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is owned by Stan Kroenke. And so, you know, everybody knows him. He owns the Avalanche and the LA Rams and, you know, all this media-based stuff. Yeah. And uh, we were talking to some of his executives at one of the meetings and we're like, wow, so he's a media mogul type guy, Stan Kroenke. And they're like, actually, Stan makes most of his money in commercial real estate. Because what he would do is like when – uh, he'd move a media company in somewhere. He's like, no, 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 no. We're going to buy the building. We're going to buy the land. We're going to build it. We're going to rent it out to other mm-hmm. people, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That's where he actually became a billionaire yeah. was through commercial real estate. Well, and it's funny when you're, <clears throat> if you can make your business productive, mm-hmm. if you can not just paying your bills, but actually having surplus as well, 
Think about what you can do with that surplus. If you could put 20, 25% down on a, on a rental property, because you're just like, Hey, I have, I honestly have too much money. <laughs> I, I need to do something. I, I've been tithing. I take care of our members at church. I, I'm really intentional with that. And I still have a surplus because, because the Lord has just blessed me and our business is doing so well. Well, what do you want to do with that money? Honestly, if you can put that 20, 25% down into a rental property where the bank is, is throwing in the rest. And then you do that again and again and again, because your business is doing pretty well, you got to park the money somewhere, right? Or else it's just going to, you know, get eaten away with inflation, especially today. So I'm going to park it into a a rental property. I'm going to take care of those rental properties. Honestly, over time you pay those off and then they're bringing in even more money for you that you didn't really quite think about it first, but over time that, that totally helped you. Cause you just got house after house after house you or whatever you, you, you can have like point. commercial property, whatever it is, whichever way you want to land it. But it oftentimes uh, is going to end up in real estate one way or another, because it's a good hedge against inflation. Uh, it's going to have somebody else paying it down. It's going to have the bank putting a lot of the money up front for you. It's going to be a tax advantage for, I mean, all these different aspects, you have people who start making real money in their business, funnel it into real estate. Hmm. Because that's going to give them even more money on the money that they invested. And that goes back to, again, the holy grail where you're going to passive income. Yeah, it's really, uh, really helpful. The the other thing is a book we've talked about with Cal Newport, but so good they can't ignore you. Um, yeah. What's the tie-in here with with that in particular? Yeah, so <clears throat> this is kind of just the reminder with all of this. These conversations build on one another. Mm. We talked about map. We talked about identifying what is your calling? What is your unique gifting from God that you can employ in your business, for your family, for your people at your church, whatever it is, that conversation then builds with, you need to be so good that they can't ignore you. That's, that's Cal Newport's idea. You need to be so valuable. What you do is rare and valuable that people can't just go to somebody else. You're part of the conversation from day one because you've worked hard to be that way. That's the second conversation that now we have built on where we say, if you do that, if you follow this path and you really are working within your gifting, within your calling, and you have increased your value over and over and over again, day after day, the money's going to be there too. Again, as long as it's not maybe for if you're doing art or something like that, but, but I'm talking about things like we would typically think of like painting or or being a doctor or whatever it is, you're getting better and better. You're going to get paid better over time as well. And so if you can follow this conversation, take on that mindset, you're going to be so good. They can't ignore you. The money's going to come with it too. And that's what we've been trying to address today, right? It's a topic that isn't talked about enough. And there's other resources that, that maybe, maybe we can talk about at a later time uh, if people are interested. But, but really, it, it comes down to this. It's a mindset shift. So much of it is a mindset, mindset shift. And once you've done that, now, now the hard work begins. If now you can, you can follow actually, the path. Yeah, you can build your business, have some passive income, kind of follow those steps. I know we've, in our own way, we've each kind of done that uh-huh. and can say, yeah, it's hard. But but it we're does, still working on it. We're still working on it. Yeah. It's a process, but you can definitely make headway there. You don't, you know, especially we had, to a lot of the guys I knew in ministry. Like you don't have to be poor. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, Kevin, I appreciate the conversation, and uh, hopefully, it's been beneficial for everyone. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. And special shout out to our Patreon supporters. If you're not yet a Patreon supporter, you can join today for as little as $5 
a month, and that definitely helps keep this work going. We are glad to partner with you for content that builds a new Christendom and reclaims biblical masculinity at the same time. You can check the show notes for the link to become a Patreon supporter of the Hard Men podcast today. Stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men. Thank you.